From First Family Church in Ankeny, Iowa, you're listening to a message from the series Traction, Getting Past Your Past. For more information and messages, visit our website at firstfamily.church. A couple of weeks ago, I was uh, leaving with Julie on a walk one evening, and we noticed a little mushroom sprouting under our tree in the front yard. We said, when we get back, we'll pick that up. So sure enough, we got back from the walk. I reached down into the tree, and I just plucked it up, didn't think a thing about it, threw it away. The next morning, when I got up to go to work, there was about 25 of those things under my tree. <laughs> and so I texted Julie. I said, uh, we've got a farm under our front tree, a mushroom farm. She said, yeah, I saw that when I was leaving as well. So we couldn't deal with it till that afternoon when we all got back, but by that time, they were bigger and larger, and it just looked odd in our front yard. So we uh, uprooted all of them, and I began to ask a few experts, Dr. Google and Dr. Wiki. <laughs> I said, um, how do I deal with the mushroom thing? And, and all of them said, without, a, without any really variation, don't spray them. I was thinking, I'll go to Menards, I'll pick up some spray, I'll rid myself of these mushrooms, but they said, that's not the problem. The problem's not on the surface. The problem is underneath. And so as I read more, I realized that mushrooms are actually living things growing from what's dead. Who'd have thought? And he said, the problem's in your soil. Now, I'm not a horticulturist or a mushroomologist of any type, okay? But I read enough to know that I've got some soil issues that needs more fertilizer, more nitrogen. It needs more of these things so that what's decaying and what's rotting under the soil will not continue to give life to these things called mushrooms. In fact, I, I, I didn't know this, but the mushroom's actually not the body. That's just apparently the fruit of the decay and the rot. And the, the body, which contains these decaying, rotting Elements can actually spread up to a half a mile. And then you just see the fruit kind of sprouting up in different places. I think that's why mushrooms are a good metaphor for bitterness. Because often we have rotten, decaying things in the soil of our life. And we keep thinking if we spray what we see on the top, we'll get rid of it. But you can't spray away bitterness. You've got to get under the soil and figure out what's rotten and decaying. What's happening below the, the surface level of my life? What's in the ground that's causing these things to sprout up? There's an interesting text and context that addresses this very thing. It's Hebrews chapter 12. Will you take your Bibles and locate that passage with me, would you? Hebrews 12, and let's talk for a few minutes this morning about the lingering rot of bitterness. In this passage, I mentioned to you that it's an interesting text and context. It's a text in that it does specifically mention bitterness. So we're going to see that and we're going to investigate that and unpack more about bitterness this morning. But it's in the context of difficult situations and events that were coming into the lives of these believers, primarily Jewish, the events 
that were causing them and tempting them to want to turn away from following Christ. In the context of Hebrews 12, it, it speaks of how difficult things can sometimes make us think that God is not loving, that he doesn't um, care for us, that he's not gracious. And, but, but the writer is saying, no, those very things are actually discipline measures that God takes, and in the moment they are painful, but in the end they're actually very peaceable. They bring about a fruit of righteousness. And so the writer is encouraging the believers who are undergoing persecution not to see difficult things that happened to them, things that were unfair, things that were full of mistreatment, that were possibly wrong, that were hard and costly, oppositional. Don't see them as God doing something to you that was wrong. Don't doubt God about it. Trust God with it that he'll use it in a disciplinary fashion to bring about a peaceable fruit in the end. And so in the middle of very hard things, he's saying don't turn away from following Christ. Don't let those situations and events make you doubt God. Instead, trust him and see that he's using even difficult things. That's the context of this specific text on bitterness. It begins in verse 12. I want to dive into those six verses with you, 12 through 17. Before I do, let me just simply admit to you this is a wide and deep subject. Would you agree? And to try to discuss bitterness in just a few minutes is practically impossible. But we can dive into certain aspects of it from a biblical point of view. And so we're going to do that in this, in this message. To help you with some other aspects pertaining to bitterness, we've put together a resource page for you this week. If you go to our website, go to our Facebook page, you'll be able to find that link there or just remember that. If you're a genius, just remember it and you'll, you'll be down with it, right? But just check there. There's a good selection of articles and tips, different things about this topic that I think will complement well the message. I'm only going to be able to take some time and focus on what I think are maybe some fundamental, maybe root issues about this subject. And we're praying and have been all week that God would use it mightily to move us closer to Him and out of any rut that you may be in. This may be one of the reasons some of you are stuck. And in this eight-week series, we're analyzing what are some things that we can address in our life that would enable us to get traction, to move out of our ruts where we're spinning our wheels and really make mature progress in our walk. And one of these is the rot of lingering bitterness. It oftentimes is the reason many people are stuck. So let's look at what the writer of Hebrews would say about this. He says in verse 12, let me read all six verses initially. He says, Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather that it would be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. 
Can I just bring to your attention five simple observations? The first three especially will be relatively quick about these verses that seem to address the lingering rot of bitterness and some things about it. First of all, he does say in verse 12, he, he makes a clear command, doesn't he? And that clear command is this. Let's get some traction. Let's make some progress. Do you see the words in verse 12? Look at your Bibles with me. He says, lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet. Uh, don't limp around in a lame fashion, but be healed. In other words, he's calling for growth, isn't he? He's calling for action, for traction, for spiritual progress. So the command is clear. When difficult events, situations, things come your way, realize that God is using them to actually discipline you and mature you. That's what he says in the first part of 12. And so use it to that end. Make some progress even in the difficult things. How is that progress then seen? How do we notice when there's traction well, generally speaking, we can notice that the vertical relationship is taking effect when we see it horizontally. And I think that's the reason he says next in verse 14, strive for peace with everyone. Notice how he moves from just this general command to, to make progress and gain traction to this, this stated goal. I want you to strive for peace with everyone. And he says next to strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So there's two things that are kind of our goal as we're maturing and gaining traction and growing and making progress. Striving for peace and striving for holiness. Now, now think about this with me, church. He is not speaking here of positional holiness, nor is he speaking about positional peace. He's not saying strive and work hard to get peace with God or to attain the holiness from God. He's not saying that. Those are gifts from God brought to us by Jesus Christ. So what's he saying here then? I think, and I agree with John Stott when he writes, that this is more of a horizontal, kind of a sanctifying aspect of peace and holiness. In other words, this is the kind of peace that we exert towards others to live in good relationship with Him. It's the kind of holiness that would mark a life of someone who's trying to live in the right way around others. Now, this is birthed out of peace with God and being right with God, being called saints, which is just the word for holy one. It's birthed out of that. So we're not earning anything, but there is no doubt about it that the writer here is saying those who truly belong to God, there's going to be this desire, there's going to be this compulsion to passionately pursue horizontal peace and right living around others. And in fact, I think what he says in the last phrase is, if this is not typical of you, you're probably not going to be around to see the Lord return. In other words, you're not truly born again. That's what the phrase, no one will see the Lord, probably is referring to Paul's Belief that the Lord would come quickly. And he's saying, you know what? If, if you're not striving and passionately pursuing horizontal peace and, and right living with others, if that's not in your heart to really do because of God's grace to you, then quit kidding yourself. You probably don't even belong to God. And you won't see him when he comes. So here's the stated goal. That, that we really have a horizontal type of 
of pursuit of peace and holiness. By the way, the word strive there, it's an interesting word. It, it, it actually refers mainly in the New Testament to how the Christians were treated by the non-Christians. Did you know that? So I think the writer of Hebrews here is actually using it as a play on words. He's saying, just as they persecuted you passionately. In fact, the word strive is used several times as the word persecute. And so this writer is saying this, you be just as passionate in the opposite direction. They're intent on pursuing you for ill. You be intent on pursuing them for peace. You be intent on pursuing them to show them the righteousness that God gives to a life. Are you with me? So he uses that word to say strive for peace and strive to live a holy life. But within these first two understandings of the clear command and the stated goal, we have a, another understanding we have to deal with. And it comes from this word strive. That he, he implies a dilemma now. Just in the word strive is, is that we're really not there yet. Do you kind of catch that? Like, why would he ask you to strive for something if you're already there? If you've already got it down perfectly, if it's no big deal to you, if like, man, I bat a thousand every time. He wouldn't say that. He would say, enjoy peace, wouldn't he? He would say, enjoy holiness. But he doesn't. He actually asks us to, to, to pursue this. What's he saying? By implication, we're not there yet. So, there yet. so there's an implied dilemma that sometimes, listen very carefully, don't let be distracted. Listen very carefully. Sometimes peace and holiness don't always happen. Everyone just kind of breathed a sigh of relief, like, okay, that's the real world I live in. <laughs> I mean, you, you want to be a loving husband, and a lot of times you are, but sometimes you're not. <laughs> I'm not either, and... Your wife would say to you what my wife has said to me at times, you know, this is not real peaceful and it's not very holy. <laughs> there are times, as a wife, you've done that to your husband. Not acted very peaceable or holy. There are times to your friends, to your small group, you've done that. It's not your intention, is it? You're striving for it, but you haven't arrived and so we have this, we have this dilemma. What do we do when peace and holiness just don't always happen? What do we do? I think that's a very good question. I think it presents to us really what I think is the, the fork in the road in this passage, which happens at the beginning of verse 15. We're all presented with a, with a fork in our spiritual road on moments when there's not peace and holiness, even though we're striving for it. And that is that we can either rest in the grace of God. He uses the phrase here, see to it that we don't fail to obtain the grace of God. In other words, we can trust God as we did at the beginning with our salvation. We can keep trusting Him and His grace to carry us through a difficult moment. We can resort to blaming God and doubting Him in that moment. And so the implied problem, the dilemma is that when it doesn't happen, when there isn't peace and holiness to the degree that we are striving for, what do we do? We have a choice to make. Will we rest in God's grace, trust Him, or will we blame Him and suddenly begin to experience doubt that settles into our soul 
and turns into bitterness. This is why in verse 15 he says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. In other words, when they, when, when they choose the wrong path in that moment, and that a root of bitterness does not spring up, we're to watch out for that, because this root will cause trouble, and by it many become defiled. So, so this is the, the, the choice you don't want to make. When there's not peace and holiness, you don't want to begin to blame God or doubt God. Well, look what you did. You got this one wrong, God. Man, this thing got messed up in a hurry. Thanks. I thought you said you were loving and gracious. Because what happens is when we begin to doubt and mistrust God in a specific moment that may be very difficult, that you may not have brought upon yourself, it could have been done to you, maybe you had a part of it in some way, large or small, but regardless of those factors, the situation is now difficult, and suddenly you're tempted to, to doubt and trust that, can God really handle this? This could not have been his plan. Surely this isn't the will of God. There, there's no way that Lord's in control of this, and all of our thoughts run to saying, you know what? On this one, I think, God, you missed it. The minute those doubts come in, they settle in us, the soil of our life begins to rot and decay. And what kind of mushrooms grow in decaying, rotting soil? Mushrooms of bitterness. And too many folks are trying to spray the mushrooms on the outside and they've yet to deal with really what's going on in the soil of their life, the root. Now this brings us to an important question in this text. What is the root of bitterness? Is it actually bitterness? Is that what he's saying? Is he saying the root is bitterness? Or is he actually saying the root is the source of bitterness? I think textually, you could probably make a case for both. So I've read different people who, have, who believe different things on this. So I just kind of studied more. And I just asked, where do I land on this? Is this a metaphor in which he's saying that the, like, let's take an apple tree. Is it an apple tree, which says to us it's a tree that actually bears apples? Or is it a wooden tree? Which means it's a tree, but it's really wood, right? Because one would be you're talking about its substance, you would say it's a wooden tree, but that wooden tree doesn't bear wood. What does it bear? So you would call it an apple tree. In one name, you're actually talking about the fruit it bears. In one name, you're talking about what it actually is. Are you following me? So is this a root of bitterness in which it's actually comprised of bitterness, or is it a root that actually bears fruit of bitterness? That's the question we should ask ourselves, because I think it's very important to understand what's going on here. I contend, and have landed on this place, I think the root is not actually bitterness. But bitterness is the fruit that comes from this root that's just decaying, rotting in our life. What is that root? I think the root is pride and unbelief towards God in a given specific situation. And I draw that from Deuteronomy 29. So I'm not going to just give you my opinion without some support. Here's the first instance in which this very phrase, which the writer of Hebrews uses, this phrase, the root of bitterness, he actually draws this from Deuteronomy, the Old Testament law. So here's the first usage of this phrase in the Bible. And in hermeneutics, often what you do is you ask yourself, what does the principle of first usage tell me? 
And when you go to the first usage of something, it will often tell you kind of how it's meant to be used. And so in this case, let's ask ourselves, what does the first usage or the first mention of the root of bitterness say to us and teach us? Here's what Deuteronomy 29 says, when the Lord said to the children of Israel that they should beware, look at the last part, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. So this indicates to us that the root is actually something different than the fruit that it bears. Would you admit that? So what is the root? Look at the next verse. It's very similar to the first part of that verse. This says, it's one who, when he hears the words of the sworn covenant, he blesses himself in his heart, saying, I'll be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. It's actually someone who holds on to their stubborn pride and unbelief in a very secret, deceptive fashion and says, though I'm in the middle of Christian people, though I'm thought to be in the company of God's people, in my heart, I'm going to resist God's will and God's word. I'll do what I want to do regardless of what God's covenant calls me to do. So do you see the pride and unbelief there? And I think this is in relation to a specific situation here in Deuteronomy 29. Someone whose heart is, they're seeing the other nations. The first part of the verse said they're watching the other kings and, and they're being drawn away to go worship other gods and the nations. They're having this moment like, hey God, what have you done to us? We're your people, but it's, we don't seem to have it as good as they had it. We don't, we don't seem to be enjoying life like they're enjoying it. Much like the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. And their first response near uh, the first few days was to go back to Egypt. Remember that? And they were mad at God. They blamed God for their deliverance. They were bitter. In fact, later on we know that God had them drink water from a place called Mara, which means in Hebrew, bitter. And so we're describing someone who, when they look around them, they see difficult situations and they say, you know what? Yeah, God got this one wrong. And so, you know what? I don't believe you really have my best interest, your will, your graciousness, your goodness, but I don't think it's in play in this case. And so they let that doubt settle in, and that doubt then begins to produce bitterness. Now, I don't think you're a heretic or textually out of line. If you say, well, Todd, I see it differently, I think the root is bitterness. Man, we'll be friends. In fact, we wouldn't even argue about that, okay? That's just non-essential to me. In fact, I'd just be this frank with you. I'll be this frank with you. You might could make a strong, might could. I said that again, didn't I? I say that a lot of the Southerner. You could make a strong case that the root of bitterness is actually a person. In fact, that might be where I'd land most textually. Even this morning in some of my early study, I, I couldn't get away from all the personal pronouns in this text in Deuteronomy where it's one who says in his heart. Here, Esau's given it as an example, and we see, see that no one fails, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes it for many to be defiled, that no one. So I'm thinking maybe the root of bitterness is actually a person. So there's, there's a number of ways to see this. I, what I want to do on this message is focus on this. When you respond to difficult situations, whether they're by your own doing or they're done upon you, and there could be a a wide range within that. And I know in this room, every person's already isolated that event in your life. I know you have. We were praying this morning, and we have all week, that every person in this room, you're thinking right now of that event that 
either changed your life, the trajectory of it, that hurt you, that caused you grief, you're thinking about it right now. When those things happen, how will we respond? Because our response is critical. If we respond and do as James 1 says, and we say, God, you're tempting me with evil. You're to blame for this. This is your fault. Spiritual decay will set in. And we'll be stuck in that place, spinning our wheels while the mushrooms of bitterness grow and sprout. Perhaps it would be good at this point to give you a definition of bitterness in light of what we've learned so far. Okay? So let me simply try to share with you how I describe and define it. And you may have a different definition, no problem. This is not Webster's, this is Todster's. So it's kind of how I see it. Based on this passage and the, and, the, and the Bible, I'm sure there are shorter ones, but here's kind of how, what I understand about bitterness so far, okay? That it's actually resentful, silent unbelief. Did you know that? Now maybe a better way to say it would be bitterness is the evidence of resentful Silent unbelief. Usually from an unresolved event. A situation, an encounter, a moment, a relationship in which you were sure God got it wrong. It doesn't mean you're an unbeliever necessarily. It just means that in this moment you're struggling with this situation and so you've chosen to doubt God about this. And so as James says, you're kind of an unstable person, double-minded in all your ways. And you'll stay stuck there as long as that is unresolved. What will grow will be bitterness because it's really rooted in resentful, silent unbelief that settles inside us deceptively and sharply. I say sharply because the, the etymology of the word bitterness, uh, it's derived from a sharp object. It's the word picaria. Can you say that with me? Picaria. That's just the Greek word for bitterness. It describes a sharp object. And bitterness is that way. Every so often, it just kind of pokes at you, letting you know, yeah, you haven't dealt with that yet. You see something and it makes you mad, but you don't say anything. But boy, inside, you're boiling now. Or you watch that and it makes you suddenly sad. Or, 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 or it could be a number of emotions. But often, bitterness is that poke in our side that, oh, yeah, I've not dealt with that yet. So it's deceptive and it's sharp. And what I've found is that it eventually surfaces publicly and dangerously. Remember the phrase in Hebrews? That it brings trouble, it defiles many. And so we have this moment in which we doubt God and we don't deal with our doubt. That settles, it surfaces as bitterness, which is really a deceptive and dangerous kind of response we give then. And it usually shows up in three ways. Personal isolation. People love to be left alone. Relational manipulation and or verbal humiliation. By the way, just briefly, let me just say this, that you could probably find most of these in the book of Ruth. Do you know that? You know, the book of Ruth is a book about God, first of all. But as a secondary means of learning, it also tells us a lot about how people respond to difficult things, especially a woman named Naomi. You should read the book of Ruth. I did this week. 
just through that filter. And what starts off in chapter 1 is a woman who is admittedly saying, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter. And she says, all of you should leave me. My husband's died, my sons-in-laws have died, see, my sons have died, all of you should leave me. I think, after studying that a little more, she's probably asking for everyone to leave her alone. She probably is very suicidal. She's wanting to end her life. She's kind of done with life as it was. She's lost everything she thought was valuable. But Ruth picks up on this and notices that she's in a terribly lonely, isolated place. And she says those famous words we use at weddings, entreat me not to leave you, right? She's not leaving Naomi in a place where she would make a terrible decision. But as the book unfolds, you find that Naomi moves really from bitterness to a place of blessing. She eventually holds the son that God gave to Ruth and Boaz. And it's interesting that as she's holding the son, the ladies of the town are saying, God has given Naomi a son. And you find that she's around people. There's an interesting gradual change that happens in Naomi. It's a beautiful way to kind of read the book. In the middle of the book, you find her doing some things and saying some things that you could actually per, that, uh, could be perceived as quite manipulative. Just read through the book. It may be a, a way for us to get some insight into someone who admittedly said, I'm so angry at God. Don't even call me by my name. Call me bitter. And what we saw in her was these mushrooms growing, and they displayed themselves in personal isolation, relational manipulation, and then, of course, verbal humiliation. This is really how I understand, define, and describe bitterness from a biblical point of view. Again, there's many tangents here, lots to talk about. I can't get into all of it. Just start wrestling with this, all right? It's resentful, silent unbelief. A doubt towards God. Tim Keller says it much simpler than I do, though. Here's how he says it. Listen very carefully. He says that worry is not believing God will get it right. So he's talking about worry on the front end, right? We're anticipating, man, God, you're not going to be able to handle this. But he says bitterness is believing God got it wrong. So it's, it's an evaluation of something after the fact, of the difficulty, and saying, you know what, God, you missed that one. What we've been saying in this message, that these believers, Jewish believers, struggling with difficult situations that were tempting them to turn away from Christ, yeah, the minute they start doubting and saying, yeah, Lord, this is not what was cracked up to be. You, you misled me on this. Then suddenly that doubt can form into the soul of our life and what pops up is bitterness, anger. He then closes with an example, and I'll just do this briefly, of someone who did experience this very situation, this root, who may have actually been a root, to be most textual with you, he talks about Esau, and look how he goes about describing his digression. He describes it in, in some ways in reverse order. He starts with the end of Esau's life. Do you see that? Describes him as sexually immoral or unholy. We don't have any biblical record that he was immoral, but this does give us proof that at the end of Esau's life, he must have been living a life that was not even closely related to one of God's people. Immoral, unholy, and this seemed to stem from a trigger event. Look what he says next. He sold his birthright for a single meal. Now let's just talk very frankly for a moment. In that moment, when Esau sold his birthright, was he in dire need and stressed and hungry? Yes. But was there also some part in Jacob that seemed to kind of prey on that? There was. Do you recall? I don't know if I'd say he was tricked, 
But there was some of this brother to brother like, hey, I'll sell you your birthright. Oh, excuse me, I'll sell you some soup, some food. And so there's this give and take, and suddenly Jacob kind of gets the upper hand, doesn't he? Somewhat tempts, kind of deceives, almost tricks Esau. Now, was God in that? Did God use that? Yes. Can I explain all that? No. But Esau's response to that is what was most telling. And what proved to be a very difficult moment for him, instead of trusting God, he resorted to his own stubbornness, and he lived the rest of his life trying to kill his brother. In fact, Esau became the father of the Edomites. They were arch enemies for centuries against the children of Israel. In fact, did you know this, that King Herod was an Edomite? So it makes sense that when Christ came, in the time period of Roman oppression, who would be a better overseer of the area the Jews lived in than someone who hated the Jews from the time they were born? That's the Edomites. These are the people of Esau. And where did all this come from? It came from a trigger event in which Esau really regretted what he did, but he found no repentance for it. And he lived instead the rest of his life in regret and bitterness. He doubted, you know what, God? This, this is not right. This is your fault. Took it out on his brother. This is the example of bitterness to its worst degree. Now, now let me give you another textual note here. In this case, Esau is indicative of the person who is so bitter that it proves he's not really born again. He's not part of God's people. But the book as a whole is written to God's people, though there are pretenders within it, as we said before in our study of Hebrews. So watch this. If bitterness, if the response of doubt and unbelief that leads to bitterness is always your response, if that's generally how you look at God's work, the problem in the soil of your life may be that you're actually unregenerate. That you're not born again. Because born again people, though there are moments in which they're tempted to doubt God, and they have their, their struggles, God pulls them through that. They do eventually trust and they have faith. But if your life is consistently marked by doubting God and not believing, so that decade after decade, it's always God's fault. He's to blame. And that your life is unholy and immoral. If this really marks your life more of an Esau character trait, Quit kidding yourself if you're not striving for peace and holiness to try to make things right and live in ways that represent Christ. If that's really not part of you, but instead it's bitterness and anger and immorality, if that's your life, then all that's showing you is that the soil in which that's been growing is not God's soil at all. So there's a message here. Bitterness can actually be the indication of the kind of soil we actually have. It doesn't mean it always is because all of us are tempted at times to want to blame God in situations, to look at difficult things and say, wow, I didn't ask for this. But what is it that we linger in over a lifetime? And can I say to you in all humility and yet boldness, if you've been lingering for a lifetime in bitterness, no wonder you're stuck. You need to move from bitterness to trust and confidence in God. Well, let's just make some more tracks here in this message. 
Let me show you in a way of a picture form kind of what we've talked about in these five observations. I, I was thinking through this over the last week or two, and this is a picture that maybe would say the same thing in more of our vernacular. This would kind of be in the motif of our series, you know, traction, kind of gaining progress through our, our ruts. So here you are cruising down the road of your spiritual walk right in your car, right? You're going along pretty good, and something happens, an event it could be something you did that was really stupid or sinful. It could be something done to you. But something happens to either slow your progress, to your, your wheels start spinning, you start sliding, your car breaks down. Something happens and you've got to deal with it. And your reaction is one of two things. You can either harbor unbelief and pride. You can blame God. You can doubt he's really got this. You can say, you know what? You missed this one. And that can turn into resentment and that can begin to rot and you can stay stuck there in bitterness. And some people do for days, weeks, years, and decades. And it's not their bitterness, by the way, that has them stuck. That's the mushroom on the surface. It's their doubt of God's control in and over their life that has them stuck. Or you can respond in this way, with humble trust. That, you know, I don't understand what's happening. I didn't ask for this. Or, man, this sin that I committed, it sure has caused me a ton of grief. I've got some serious consequences to work through. It, it may be a number of things like that. But there's something that's happened that you're dealing with. You can say, well, the Lord is faithful. He'll forgive me. He'll get me through this. He'll give me strength to endure it. And you can respond gracefully. Experience graceful renewal with others as you strive for peace. Even within yourself as you strive for holiness. And see a graceful resurgence and gain traction and actually be further down your spiritual road than you were when this happened. God can use it, as Hebrews 12 says, to bring about the peaceable fruit of righteousness to mature you. He can do that. Your choice is pretty critical. Your response is pretty critical in this, okay? Now, I suspect that most people in this room are looking at this picture and they're saying, man, that's what happened to me at, and you're already thinking about an isolated incident. You're thinking about a specific situation like, man, that's me. And I've never dealt with that. And you've thought that your bitterness was the problem. I'm here on the authority of God's word to tell you something. I don't think your bitterness is the problem. I think your doubt is. I think your unbelief about that specific situation is the real problem. And it's evidencing itself in the mushroom of bitterness. You're sure God missed that one, didn't you? Like you're, yeah, he, he got that one wrong. But he didn't. So, so what is one to do? Because you're probably thinking, Todd, that, that's where I'm at, but I don't want to stay there. I don't think anyone here intensely wants to stay stuck. What do I do? That's the key question today, isn't it? The first step out of bitterness is always forgiveness. You say, well, I don't see that up there anywhere. You do. It's in the words humble trust. Let me explain it to you. Because when you trust the Lord in a current bad situation, you can do so because you trusted him with your worst situation. Don't be distracted. Listen to me. At the cross, God took care of your worst situation. And every eye listened to me. Both ears, both eyes, listen. There was no greater injustice done 
humanly speaking, than the cross of Christ. Did you know that? The hands of angry men and wicked sinners took the Son of God, scourged him, beat him, falsely accused him, and crucified him. And yet God took the greatest human injustice this side of heaven and used it for your greatest spiritual good. He brought eternal life to you out of what was actually insufferable injustice. If God could take the murder of his son and bring from it eternal spiritual life for you, guess what? He can take the situation that you're stewing about and he can use it for good as well. He's proven already to be able to do exactly that. That's why humble trust in God is not rooted in some kind of fantasy. I'm not asking you to have some kind of white-knuckled, you know, positive thinking mentality. Oh, yeah, well, I'll just believe for the best. No, I'm asking you to root your trust in what God has already proven to be able to do. Take your worst nightmare, your soul's deepest sickness, that you were on your way to hell. And God came in and rescued you. He sent his son who died on the cross to save you from your sin. He awakened you. He caused you to believe. You did believe. And God saved you from eternal death. He did that for you. So now in this current situation that you think got you sidetracked, that God can't handle, it's not as bad as that one. And I'm not minimizing your struggle. Some of them are, are deep. They're the loss of children. There are miscarriages. There's, there are divorces and abuse. Deep waters. Forsakenness. Loss of jobs and, and, and income and homelessness. We, we can list a number of things. I am not minimizing that. I'm just saying, can, can you at least admit this? Those pale in comparison to what it would be like for you to be damned to hell with no chance of redemption. But God solved that. God solved your eternal predicament. You can trust him with your current one. This is the essence of what the Bible calls faith and trust. When you actually begin to realize Wow, God, he's forgiven me. He has set me on a rock. He has taken away my sin. He has paid my debt. Then that frees you then to live that way to others. So when I say to you, the first step out of silent, resentful unbelief is forgiveness. It's saying to you this. It's understanding your own forgiveness and then realizing that's the source by which we can forgive others because you do not have the capacity to forgive others apart from understanding your own forgiveness by God in Christ. It will be mere human effort. It will just be more kind of, uh, you know, treadmill of good works and moralism. You'll wear out and jump off that in a hurry. But when you visit the cross and realize that God in Christ forgave you, then suddenly the bitterness that has come from the doubt that's the root deep inside, 
that'll begin to be dissolved by the fertilizer of grace. And you'll find that if God forgave me, I can forgive them. That's the only wellspring from which we can live a life of forgiveness. In fact, can I just prove this to you? I like it when you ask me to do that. Ephesians 4. Look at the first word in this couplet of verses. Let all, say it with me, bitterness. Now he mentions other sins as well, but he starts with bitterness. And as he asks folks to put these things away and to embrace kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness, which I believe is another way to simply say strive for peace with all people and holiness. As he asks for these actions, he roots them in this last perspective. He says, live this way. Why? Because God in Christ forgave you. He, without apology, says you will not be able to rid yourself of bitterness and live in forgiveness until you realize what God has done for you. That's not selfishness. That's not um, uh, narcissism. That's actually theological reality. God has forgiven you. So guess what? Whatever it is you're stewing about, God's forgiven you. Let's extend that now to others. Let's quit doubting that God's in control and seeing that surface in bitterness. Let's realize he has taken care of our worst eternal predicament. He can surely handle this one. And then in the, in, the, in the sweetness of that forgiveness, let's start forgiving others. Now I admit to you, this is just the beginning points of understanding things about bitterness. I'm not trying to say I'm an expert on it, and nor am I saying this is a complete matter on the subject. But I will contend with you that forgiveness is always the first step. And not you trying to forgive others, you understanding that God's forgiven you. That's the first step in dealing with bitterness because it's out of the wellspring of God's gracious forgiveness of us in Christ that we even find the the, the motivation and ability to forgive those who've wronged us. So let's just kind of put this in a single sentence as we wrap up, can we? Here's the take-home truth for today regarding the lingering rot of bitterness. That the rot of bitterness can only begin to be removed when the power of God's forgiveness in Christ replaces my decaying response of unbelief to a specific situation. That's what's got to happen. That's what we're dealing with. You must get to the root of the fruit and then realize, you know what? God, I need your forgiveness because I doubted you. You bring that to the cross God graciously forgives you for doubting him. And then suddenly you begin to be overwhelmed by his graciousness, his forgiveness, and you find that those who wronged you, you can begin to forgive them. It is a process, and I'm not saying that it's easy, but it's a whole lot better than being stuck. And the reason some of you are stuck, not getting any traction, you're not really seeing verse 12 come true in your life, is because you've been spinning your wheels in this rut called lingering bitterness. And something, an event, a relationship, an encounter happened at some point in your life and you're sure God got that one wrong. With all kindness, God didn't get it wrong. 
He's in full control, has complete authority, and he will use even the worst things in the end to bring about maturity and, and, and his people. He wants you to simply trust him. You see, the battle against bitterness doesn't begin with focusing on someone else's sin to you. The battle with bitterness begins by focusing on your sin against God. Why did you doubt him in that moment? And why are you still harboring that resentful unbelief towards him? Bring that to God, to the cross. Experience his forgiveness. And then watch him unleash a forgiving lifestyle in your life. So can I show you one last slide as we wrap things up? Just a simple slide that will kind of let you know the kind of a three-step, maybe a plan to help begin battling bitterness. Yeah, see it for what it really is, which is unbelief. Accept God's forgiveness for both the root, that moment of doubt and unbelief, as well as the fruit, how the mushrooms were growing. Just say, God, I need forgiveness for that. Accept it because of the cross, and then just begin to extend it to those who hurt you. And I want to say to you, number three may look impossible to you, but it's not if you rest in number two. Church, are you hearing me? Please, with both your ears and eyes, hear me. Number three is, it is impossible apart from number two. You can't forgive until you realize what God has done for you in Christ. And this is why Jesus would say himself in Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15. Listen to these stinging words from these verses. He says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. He's not saying that he hinges his forgiveness upon us. He's not saying that. He's simply saying this. When you don't forgive, it's the clearest sign you've not been forgiven. And when you have been forgiven... Trust the Lord that he will empower you to do what seems humanly impossible. Forgive those who trespass against you. If you don't, choose the route of forgiveness to begin battling bitterness. You'll be stuck forever with soil that's rotten and decaying, mushrooms growing, and you're trying to spray them on the outside. What God wants you to do is get into the soil and figure out what's going on below the surface. I need to end, and so I just want you to know again, I look around the room at faces, and I know some of you have gone through some very, very deep waters. I've been praying for a couple of weeks. I asked our staff to pray this with me, that this would not come across as like a simple solution. I'm not minimizing so many difficult things a lot of you have gone through. But as your pastor, the last thing I want you to do is to not believe God in any situation. I don't want to give unbelief even an, a, an inch or a fraction of an entrance into my life. Do you? Because the minute unbelief and doubt settle in and we start impugning God, man, that root sprouts fruit and that's called bitterness. I don't want that. I don't want it to defile many and bring trouble. And so I'm asking God, Lord, help me to simply trust you at every moment. And I can. You know why? 
because you helped me with what I could never help myself, and that is the, the sickness of my soul. So I don't know how large your pit is right now. I don't know how thick the rut is you're in, but I can assure you, God is able. And he loves you, and he cares for you. And if you're a child of his, he has already done the most significant thing this side of heaven. He can surely take care of your current situation. Isn't God amazing? Isn't he wonderful? Let's thank him together for his love and mercy and forgiveness and ask him to continually move us away from doubt towards trust and faith. Lord Jesus, thank you. For the convicting word of this text, I know in my life, just to not let a single incident or occurrence or encounter or situation settle in wrongly, but to respond graciously and biblically by trusting you with every situation. And when I don't, Lord, to recognize that in those moments of conviction and to bring that under the authority of your word and say, Lord, I was wrong in how I responded. Forgive me. Lord, that's where all bitterness stems from, is doubting that you've, you've got us in your hand and we're under your control. Lord, would you give traction to people this morning in their spiritual walk who have been stuck in the rot of lingering bitterness? Would you give them traction by bringing them back to Calvary? That place where you accomplished the most single greatest eternally lasting work out of the deepest injustice one could know. If you have done that, we can rest and trust that you will do that in any of our situations as well. And so, Lord, we stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And we wonder how he could love us Sinners, condemned, unclean. And we sing, how marvelous, how wonderful my song will ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Lord, sink that deeply into the soil of our life so that instead of the mushrooms of bitterness, it is the fruit of righteousness and peacefulness. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.